Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We want to make keeping up with the literature easy, and so we're spoon-feeding you with the latest research. Now let's just tease everything that we covered from this past week, and then we'll go into it. First off, we had bringing the ultrasound to the bedside for diverticulitis, then the management of postpartum hemorrhage, after that a quick look in the mirror, considering the way that patients see us and how that affects our care. After that, biomarkers go head-to-head against the MASK score for prognosticating in febrile neutropenia, and then finally a quick way to rule out early repolarization in anterior MI patients. This of course is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the fanciful. Drew Clare, Megan Breed, Carmen Wolf, and Clay Smith. So, on our first article, which was titled Utility of Point of Care Ultrasound in Patients with Suspected Diverticulitis in the Emergency Department of the Journal of Clinical Ultrasound. So, patients come in with diverticulitis all the time, and it's probably at the forefront of your mind for any patient with lower left quadrant pain. Part of the reason that it's so common, though, is that it reoccurs commonly. In up to 22% of patients, it can come back. And as far as diagnoses go, I mean, diverticulitis is pretty much on the benign side. But there are dangerous diagnoses that can look a lot like it. So a CT scan is often used to make the diagnosis. If patients are coming in several times for similar things, it's not great for us to be scanning them every time with the CT scanner. So what about some other options? POCUS does pretty well at diagnosing appendicitis, which is the inflammation of an outpouching of the colon. Sound familiar? Why not ultrasound for diverticulitis as well? So let's cover the scanning protocol that this study used for diverticulitis. So get out your linear probe, or if it's a more generous abdomen, then possibly an abdominal probe. And you're going to be evaluating the sigmoid colon. So start with the lower end of your probe over the left anterior superior iliac spine, and then scan in kind of a circular motion, evaluating the colon as it descends toward the midline. Try to get the distal portion using the bladder as a window. If you find diverticulitis, it will typically look like a small sac-like outpouching of the bowel wall with a peripheral hypoechoic ring and central echogenicity. This is typically referred to as the pseudo-kidney sign. So the sensitivity and specificity of doing this, while always better in experienced hands, was actually quite good. They had 94% and 99% respectively. Of course, this still should be used only selectively, as there are still many dangerous diagnoses that can look a lot like diverticulitis. So it might be best used in these patients with repeat visits. In a spoonful, in patients with suspected uncomplicated acute diverticulitis, ultrasound may be a good first-line imaging modality. Then we have the second article, which was titled Postpartum Hemorrhage out of the New England Journal of Medicine. I personally have mainly worked in academic centers, where it's not typical for the ER doctor to be the one who's delivering a baby, but it can definitely happen to you no matter where you are. It's not that uncommon for a baby to be delivered even before the mother gets to the hospital, so this could definitely end up on your plate. Currently, the leading cause of maternal mortality worldwide is postpartum hemorrhage, and this is defined as a blood loss of more than a thousand milliliters in the context of delivery. This is hardly surprising that it happens. Honestly, the uterus's blood supply increases tenfold during pregnancy. 
So with 600 milliliters a minute being pumped into the uterus, if there's significant bleeding, you need to act fast. So let's go over some of the causes and what to do about them. There's a very common mnemonic for this, and that's called the four T's. Those T's are tone, trauma, tissue, and thrombin. Let's start with tone. That's the most common cause of bleeding. To stop bleeding normally, the uterus will contract upon itself and it'll clamp down on all the blood vessels. If it doesn't do this, then you have a problem with the uterus's muscle tone. Anything that might disrupt muscle contraction can cause this problem. So infections, too much magnesium, tired muscles from a prolonged delivery, fibroids, previous surgery, you get the picture. Treating this, there's a long list of possible methods that you could run through. The first thing that you're going to do always, though, is the bimanual uterine massage to try to stimulate contraction. Look it up if you're not sure exactly where to put your hands, but basically one hand is going to go in the vagina and the other hand is going to press on the abdomen to try to squish the uterus between both your hands. While you're doing this, the nurse should probably be starting medications. First line is oxytocin. If medications fail, then there are fancier methods of compression or surgical options. But honestly, you should probably have an OB already on the way if you've gotten this far. The next T is trauma. This is the result of operative deliveries, precipitous deliveries, or episiotomy. All of these will be managed by addressing the genital tract lacerations, something that's probably not too foreign of a concept for an ER doctor. So do a thorough exam and repair with absorbable sutures. After trauma comes tissue, either because some piece of the placenta didn't come out right or there's an abnormal attachment of the placenta just in general. This is going to require manual removal of the placenta. In the ER context, this will probably boil down to you manually reaching in and removing the placenta. But it can also be done with a curette under ultrasound. Now the last T is thrombin, which means problems with coagulation. Pregnancy patients have a long list of possible culprits. These include things like preeclampsia, HELP syndrome, placental abruptions, and many more. Address this like you would any other coagulopathy, really. Correct the coagulopathy and then provide robust hemodynamic support. Early cryoprecipitate is recommended to try to maintain a high fibrinogen level. Other than that, transfuse blood products just as normal. In a spoonful, postpartum hemorrhage comes in four buckets. These are called the four T's. Tone, trauma, tissue, and thrombin. Each has its own management, so it's worth trying to figure out exactly what's going on. And then we have the third article, which was titled Anesthesiologist Age and Sex Influence Patient Perceptions of Physician Competence out of the Journal of Anesthesiology. This may no longer be the case for some of you, I'm afraid, but frequently I get asked by a lot of patients, exactly how old are you anyways? And it's not really in the tone that I might necessarily appreciate it being asked. Anyways, all this begs the question, how does our sex and our age affect how patients view us? This isn't an ER study, but I think that the concepts apply even if it was done with anesthesiologists. This study was on 300 pre-op patients who viewed four different 90-second long video clips in a random order with actors playing anesthesiologists. They had actors who were an older female, an older male, a younger female, and a younger male. All the actors were white, that bears mentioning. 
They had actors do this so they could best control for things like body language, posture, tone, everything like that, so that everyone conveyed the same level of confidence and then used the same scripts to describe general anesthesia and the associated risks. Now then, each patient was asked to rank each anesthesiologist for perceived confidence, intelligence, the likelihood to choose them and recommend them for a family member, and then pick one of them and say who was the best leader. On a whole, the study was actually negative. There was no perceived differences in those things based on age or sex. In these subgroup analyses, though, there was some hypothesis-generating material. Patients who were younger than 65 seemed to rank older anesthesiologists more highly on intelligence. Another subgroup finding was that white patients were more likely to recommend a female anesthesiologist, but this wasn't found among non-white patients. Remember that all the actors were white. So how can you apply this to your practice? First of all, it was a negative study, so don't worry too much. And then second of all, I don't really know that you can apply this to your practice because these are things that you can't change about yourself. You can try to have a diverse team and have as many people that might be like the population you're seeing as possible, but either way, it's still going to be luck of the draw which physician a patient's going to see. I'd say the best thing that you can personally do is love yourself, be compassionate, and don't try too hard because, you know, patients can see through that stuff. In a spoonful, as a whole, patients don't really seem to care if you're young or old, male or female. But there's a chance that younger patients think that older doctors are more intelligent and confident, and that white patients are more likely to recommend white female doctors to their family members. And that brings us to the fourth article titled, The Prognostic Value of Serum Procalcitonin Levels in Patients with Febrile Neutropenia Presenting to the Emergency Department, out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. Febrile neutropenia is common, it's also a scary complication of chemotherapy. The definition of neutropenia in these cases is going to vary a little bit according to the site, but it's usually less than either 15 or 1,000 cells per ml, and then it can be considered severe if there's less than 500. As for the febrile part, they should have one oral temperature greater than 38.3 degrees Celsius, or two temperatures taken at least an hour apart of more than 38 degrees. It used to be that all these patients were admitted. But now we know that there are some low-risk patients who could avoid, you know, maybe the risk of a nosocomial infection and get to go home. It's identifying these patients, though. That's the crux. So here we have a prospective observational trial of 100 patients to determine the 30-day mortality using the MASC score, M-A-S-C-C. And the subsequent procalcitonin levels were also used to determine the same thing. Most of these patients had hematological malignancies, leaving just eight with solid tumors. All the patients had an ANC less than 1,000 and at least a single temperature over 38 degrees Celsius. Now then, each patient, as part of their evaluation, had the mask score assigned, then had blood cultures taken, and had a point-of-care procalcitonin drawn, all this before starting antibiotics. So using the MASK score, there was either 46 or 54 of the 100 patients who were classified as low risk. The article wasn't really able to keep its numbers straight, but anyways, besides the point. So if you added the procalcitonin with a cutoff of 1.42, then you can actually improve on the performance of the MASK score. If you had a high procalcitonin despite a low risk by the MASK score, then the odds of death were actually twice as high. Funnily, the procalcitonin alone actually performed better than the mask score. 
it had a higher area under the receiver operating characteristic curve, a higher sensitivity, and a higher specificity. At the end of the day, though, I don't think that procalcitonin should replace the mask score. And the mask score likely shouldn't be the only thing that influences your decision either. Neither score actually did very well at all on sensitivities or specificities, still just around the 60s. So even if procalcitonin did better, it wasn't doing great. In a spoonful, in patients with febrile neutropenia, procalcitonin was better at identifying a higher risk of 30-day mortality or bacteremia than the mask score was. And all this brings us to our last article, which was titled Anterior ST Elevation, Early Repolarization or Occlusion Myocardial Infarction, out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. ST elevation in the anterior precordial leads is a tricky thing. It could be a STEMI, which will mean you have to get on your feet and get those STEMI protocols rolling, or it could be something more benign, like early repolarization. How you approach these two conditions is obviously going to be drastically different. We can't miss an obvious STEMI, but we also shouldn't waste cath lab activations on benign findings. What we really need is tools to help us pick these two apart. This article was a clinical case out of the annals that zeroes in on some of the subtle clues that tip you off between early repolarization or STEMI. I personally have probably learned everything that I know about early repolarization from Dr. Amal Matu's videos. The tips of his that I remember are that early repol does not have QRS distortion. That means that it will have an S-wave or a J-wave in both V2 and V3. Other helpful tips that he likes to quote are that there will be no reciprocal ST depressions, the ST segment should be concave upwards, ST elevation in lead 2 should be more than in lead 3, ST elevation in V6 should be less than 25% as tall as the T wave, and as always if you're ever in doubt, look at the evolution of the ECG. If you'd like something that's a little bit more scientific, then a validated 4 point tool actually exists. It's even harder to remember than the things that I just rattled off, so just use MDCalc if you want to apply it. The sensitivities and specificities are quite high, so if you'd like to try it out, we have an example case from Dr. Smith's blog linked via our own blog to his blog, and so that way you can use that example as a low-stakes practice to check your conclusions. In a spoonful, SD elevation in the anterior precordyleids can be tricky but there's a validated four-point tool to help you if need be. All right, guys, that brings us all the way around. What did we learn this week? First off, in a patient with multiple visits for acute diverticulitis in the past, try ultrasounding the first to spare them that CT. It actually does a good job. Second, postpartum hemorrhage is, yeah, scary. Remember the four T's to try to nail down that etiology. Tone, trauma, tissue, and thrombin. Third, it would feel natural for me to tell you that patients will think differently about you based on who you are. But this study didn't seem to find that. There was no clear difference in how patients rated you on your intelligence or competence based on your age or sex, which is, well, actually good. Fourth, prognosticating febrile neutropenia patients can be done simply with a procalcitonin, and it actually works better than the mask score. But I'd say it's probably best to use both. Fifth, instead of humming and hawing over an ECG that you think might be early repolarization instead of a STEMI, try looking it up on MDCalc so that you can better inform your decision with a validated tool. At least this will help you with your decision or help you when you call a cardiology. 
Now then, you've earned them. We offer them. CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education are available to you. You can check out all the details at our website, journalfeed.org. Buying these credits also helps support the blog, and we very much appreciate that. Links to all the articles summarized can also be found there. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email, which means you can read the summaries and listen to them. Double the dose, double the remembering. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you. <laughs>